Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. Picking up where we left off, we are continuing our discussion about closing argument. And last time we kind of went through some of the main purposes of closing argument as kind of an intro, arming the jurors, explaining the law, engaging the jurors. And next, I think this one's called 49 Tips, just kind of general considerations for closing argument. Yeah, we thought that'd be kind of interesting. Tim and I went through no particular order, but uh, we came up with 49 tips. Tim, you want to get us started? The first one is avoid long thank yous. I don't think there's any problem with, you know, showing your appreciation and thanking the jury for their time, but long thank yous are just wasting more of their time. So thank them for their service and then get into how you're going to help them do their job. Number two, avoid too much detail. We talked about this before, you know, don't rehash the facts. Essentially, you know, hit your highlights, but you can't restate every piece of evidence that you put on for the case over and over. The jury's going to turn the lights out and stop listening. You know what? You got about three minutes to get their attention. And if you're rehashing stuff, they're lost. Number three, avoid extreme positions. That doesn't mean if you think something based on the evidence is undisputed, it doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't say this is undisputed in this case. So there's no evidence to support this or that, but avoid colorful language that might turn off people that disagree with you. Right. Anybody who believes that would be an idiot. Yeah. Right. Don't say that. (laughs) Because, you know, again, not all the jurors are with you on all of the issues. Yeah. I mean, some of them are against you and some of them might still be thinking about it. And be very careful if you're saying something is undisputed or so clear because your credibility is being weighed at all times by all 12 of those people sitting there. When do you start preparing? I think you should always be thinking about your closing argument from the time you're working up the case. And I do. And I make notes here and there. I usually keep one notepad that I keep with me in my like smaller file that I keep around. But certainly, once I start preparing for trial and throughout the trial, I have a notepad that is dedicated to closing ideas that I'll make notes throughout the trial. Yeah. And this is number four, when to start preparing. And I do the same thing. I have what I call a closing argument file, a little file folder. I had a railroad crossing case. Every time I'm out in the car driving over a crossing, I'm thinking about it. I dictate things into my phone. I'd call in and leave myself a voicemail. You can't sit down and say, okay, now I'm going to be creative right now. Thoughts come into your head. It's like, uh, you know, writing a story. You don't know what's going to spur your creativity, your imagination. Capture it, record it, talk into your phone or whatever. And something else to remember too, the week before trial is not yours. I'm going to say that again. This isn't a closing tip. This is just a general tip. The week before trial, that week, those days, those hours, they're not yours. They belong to someone else. I've never had a trial where the full five, six, seven days before I'm leisurely sitting at my desk, reviewing my outlines, looking over my clothes. You're occupied with other things and you're getting motions thrown at you, motions to dismiss, motions and eliminate, additional disclosures, pre-trials. It's never too early to start preparing. Number five, describe the juror's job. And we talked about this briefly in our prior session, but explain that their job isn't just to go back there and say what their position is, but be able to explain to everyone else why. Number six, structure your close. Have a structure for close. And this can change from case to case based on what you know the evidence is and the heat or lack of heat or what you need to focus on. But 
figure out a structure and then where you want to fit in what you want to say within that structure. And it usually should include use of instructions, at least some of them probably early, maybe other ones later, explain, you know, and show the highlights of liability, explain the law and show the highlights or arm them about damages, use the verdict form and somewhere in there, what you heard from the defendant, or if you're the defendant, what you heard from plaintiff that you think affects their credibility for plaintiff's counsel, be warned, at least in Missouri, and I think in most jurisdictions, if you do not make a recommendation of a number or range of number in your initial close, you cannot do it in rebuttal unless the defendant makes a suggestion. You can't basically sit back, not recommend a number, and then if defense counsel doesn't touch it for that reason, get up when they can't talk anymore and say, by the way, I think you should give us $5 million. Yeah, and no matter what jurisdiction you're in, the safe side is put that number out in the first portion yeah. of your close. Number seven, show jurors the easiest path to a verdict. Usually there's different claims or different negligence submissions. And if you think one is like a dead bang winner, you can explain to them, look, my recommendation is you start with this one. Everybody agrees with that one. You move on to damages. Let me give you an example. We had a case involving a school bus driver and monitor, and there were issues of course and scope of employment with the driver, not so with the monitor. They were hiring, negligent hiring, negligent supervision, negligent retention claims. We had multiple verdict directors with multiple elements of each, but a couple of the claims were very straightforward, one or two things, neither of which were disputed. One of them was the claim for punitive damages based on the monitor's conduct, and it was like A, B, and C, and A and B were admitted in the case, were not disputed. So make the job, show the jurors, give them their shortcut. You don't need to decide all of these things. This is one we think is very, don't say easy, but this is very straightforward. We don't believe there's any legitimate dispute in the evidence or in the case about these elements. These are it. If you find A, B, and C, your job is done. Move on to damages. Right. Number eight, handling life care plans. Yeah. And I think at least from the plaintiff's side, what I see is if the defense doesn't have a life care planner, and there's good reason for them not to in a lot of cases, what they'll do is, well, you saw a $12 million life care plan. We think three will suffice or $1.5 million or $68,000. When you hear that, pull out the plan. The plan should be detailed enough where you got line items of whatever is in there. And what I tell the jury in my first part of the opening, they can say, ask, for the, right, ask for the plan. And I said, if somebody suggests that this number is wrong or it's too high, rather than just choose a number between zero and $12 million, yeah. talk about what you want to take out. It makes it more difficult to lower. People think, oh, the plaintiff is just giving an inflated number and the defendant is just, you know, giving a low number so we compromise. I don't think you can just get up and say, our plan is 12, give 12. It gives it more credibility and substance if you go, look, this big number doesn't just come out of thin air. It's comprised of all of these things. If somebody wants to talk about if it shouldn't be the full number, then you have to have a discussion about which particular things you think should come out. Right. If you're back in the jury room and somebody says, well, $12 million is a lot of money. Say, we got the plan right here. We can get it. And you point out what thing you think needs to be removed. And if you can convince us, we'll remove it. Number nine, and this kind of ties in often with life care plans, is handling life expectancy. Often the defendant is saying, well, your life care plan would be smaller if you included a more realistic life expectancy. Because of these injuries, your client isn't likely to have the same life expectancy, which means the life care plan should be smaller. And John, how do you deal? How do you address well, that? Well, you know, one of the things I've done this before with the expert on the other side, the defendant's expert who comes in to say, well, because of these injuries, this person's only going to live for another 15 years, not 60. One of the cases I did, I said, so I'm sorry, doctor, who were you hired by? Yeah, the defendant. The defendant? 
okay, and you were asked to come in and tell the jury that because of the injuries that they caused, my client's life is going to be shorter and therefore they don't have to pay as much. Right. Therefore, they right. pay less. They get a discount. <laughs> they get a discount. And the quality of care also determines the life expect. If they get all the things in this life care plan, they can live longer. Right. And I think that is a really, really strong argument for life expectancy. And I've had medical experts say exactly that. You're not saying that somebody who's a quadriplegic and, you know, in this situation or in this medical condition is going to have the same life expectancy as a normal, healthy person. And the answer a lot of times might be, uh, well, it depends on the quality of care. If they get A-plus care, I see no reason why they wouldn't have a normal life expectancy. Yeah. But if you want to discount that care and take the cheap route, obviously, they will die earlier. I mean, you're basically condemning them to a shorter life by not funding the life care plan. Number 10, use examples that hit jurors close to home. And this is something you talked about in detail in the prior podcast. But some of the examples, John, that you brought up was you know, a FedEx driver, and you talked about the different zip codes he had been in that day, which included some of the jurors' zip codes, you know, testing issues with respect to a product like a vehicle, and almost everybody drives a vehicle, a case about a school bus driver, and people are thinking about how they put their kids on school buses. Yeah, you know what, that was really what I did in that case. We ended up settling that case after Vordire and before opening, and that was just one of the simple questions. I mean, the jurors, a lot of them had heard generally about the case, they were told it was about the conduct of a school bus driver and monitor with a student, a young student on one of the buses that occurred over several months. What I did in Vordire simply was, by show of hands, how many people here currently put their children on a school bus in the morning? And it was a lot of hands. Number 11, and Tim, you'll recognize this one, the importance of a party's conduct in determining damages. Yeah. Some people on the jury might not be too excited if they think what they're doing with damages is giving someone money and much more than they'll ever see in their life. But depending upon the defendant's conduct and how angry they are, they might be a lot more comfortable if in their mind what they're doing is taking money from the person who did that conduct. Right. And I like saying this. Jurors don't give money. They take it. And I've had cases where I've talked to jurors afterwards. At one case in particular, I talked to an alternate. The jury had gone back to deliberate, and the alternate came up to me and said, I wasn't really with you on the damages. I wasn't willing to give your client any money. However, I'd be willing to punish the defendant for their conduct. <laughs> I mean, you know, jurors have trouble sometimes giving money to a party, yet those same jurors have very little trouble putting someone in prison for a long period of time. When lawyers in this office come in to talk to me about the value of a case and they come in and they start talking to me about, here's what happened, here's a liability, and they talk about the damages. And I listen to it patiently, I think. And then my first question is, tell me about the defendant. Tell me about the defendant's conduct. Because I think if you want to know what the value of a case is, it's just as important, if not more important, how that injury occurred, what the defendant was doing. Was it reckless conduct? Was it crazy conduct? Is the jury um, going to like them or right. dislike them? Are they going to like them or connect with them? Number 12, handling personal attacks. Tim, how do you handle personal attacks? Are you talking, or so are these personal attacks against your client or against you? Let's talk about you. Yeah. I think generally in front of a jury, if someone is making petty personal attacks against me as a lawyer, I think the jury will figure out quickly they don't want to watch lawyers get into petty fights. And if you don't respond in kind and just sit there quietly and take it, the judge will usually do something about it. And I think you can then comment of that's what they have to resort to because they can't talk about the evidence and the facts of the case. 
So they got to attack the lawyer. One case I can recall, it was a MedMal case where we got to submit on punitives and we got a significant punitive damage award. In that case, the defendant's part of the close, the biggest part of it was several minutes. Just attacking Just you. personal attacks like, of me. Like the name calling. Yeah, no basis This lawyer is going to be in the next courtroom next week asking for millions of dollars. And then he quoted a song lyric, which basically called you a prostitute. Right. Yeah. And what I did, I completely, absolutely ignored it because it was so out of place. And the other thing, too, I thought I would rather have him take up his time with personal insults than commenting on the evidence in the case, which is what he should have <laughs> when been doing. you had some damages problems. Yeah, yeah. And it would have been much more effective. But in any event, it was very much unprofessional, uncalled for. And what I did is I just completely ignored it. We got a really nice verdict in the case. It didn't affect it at all. Yeah, you just you don't participate in allowing the jury to distract from what you want them to distract from. When you get down and roll around in the mud with a pig, two things happen. You both get dirty and the pig likes it. Yeah, stay out of the mud. So 13, arm your jurors. So what we mean by that is, you know, you're probably not going to change anybody who already has decided who they want to win by that point, but you're trying to give ammo to those who are with you so they can try to persuade others and get to the result that they want back there. Give them what they need to go back and deliberate and help convince the others that you should win. 14, go over the law. And this isn't just going through the verdict director, but there's several important instructions depending on your jurisdiction. I think burden of proof is important to go over, you know, how many jurors have to agree, whether it's unanimous or nine or more, various other instructions like definitions of negligence, the standard for punitive damages if you have that, the broadness of the compensatory damages instruction. You got to make sure you're helping them because they just got you know, had a judge read 20 minutes of legalese to them. You got to help them go through those instructions and make it easy to understand for them. 15, give jurors some skin in the game. And what that really means is explain what their purpose is and what the purpose of the tort system is if it's a tort case or the ramifications if it's any other kind of case, a contract case, that what the juror is there to do is to set community safety standards about what is or is not acceptable in this community and in our country and setting those standards has an effect on whether this kind of conduct continues in the future. Number 16, explain why the case is important. And this is pretty similar, frankly, to number 15, but you want the jury to understand that when looking at all the different tentacles of danger that are created by the kind of conduct that the defendant engaged in, they have to look at that in determining whether their conduct was reasonable or not reasonable. And just like we said with 15, that helps the jury to understand why what they're doing is important because they're deciding if this is going to be okay going forward. When to reintroduce your theme or frame. If you haven't read one of Mark Mandel's books on framing, I suggest you get them and do that. Wonderful, wonderful information. And he talks about it in terms of maybe saving it to rebuttal so that the other side really can't say anything about it. You know, I think this is something that I try to do, and it's a matter of style, early on and again at the end, and then hammer on it in rebuttal. So I don't know, John, what do you... I think I do it like you most of the times. I introduce it in the beginning and then come back to it at the end. Ideally, you want the jury to come to that conclusion. In other words, you want the jury to discover the frame of your case on their own, and then in rebuttal, you sort of connect with them and say, this is what this case is about. Again, I think it depends on the case and the circumstances. Number 18, be mindful of your demeanor, which can depend on the case. Right. One way I would describe some of them is uh, quiet sincerity, quiet confidence. There are times, I think, when you 
need and should get a little more worked up or emotional. It's usually saved for rebuttal. Yeah, it needs to be genuine. It needs to be authentic, not manufactured. I mean, if there's stuff going on in your case that gets you angry and upset, then let it roll. Yeah, but at the same time, tip 19, leave some emotional space for the jurors for them to get upset for you. Yeah, and let me give you not an example, but just a general explanation. You have conduct in the case that's clearly outrageous. Yeah. And anybody who hears that conduct is going to go, are you kidding me? You can jump up and down and say, this is outrageous. This is terrible. Or you can just lay it out and let them get mad for you. Right. Telling them they should be outraged may lessen the impact of them getting outraged on their own. Right. Let them get to that point on their own. Just lay out the facts and let the facts take care of it for you. Number 20, splitting your time. And this is obviously just for plaintiff's counsel, but you get to make a decision about how much time you want to reserve for rebuttal and take out of your initial argument. And that may depend on the case. John, how do you usually split it? Well, long ago, when I just started practicing, I worked with a lawyer who told me always go 50-50. He said, the reason is you can always borrow time from the second half. Yeah. Maybe I did it once or twice and I get a screwy look from the judge. I tried to ask once if I could do 25-75 and say 75 for rebuttal. And the judge, (laughs) the the defense lawyer is like, judge. And she goes, no, but I did it 50-50. And it's because another counsel was going to do the first part and I was going to do the last part. And so I took 50% of my time in the rebuttal when they didn't get to talk anymore. And we got a $12.5 million verdict. It worked out. But I I usually only say five minutes for rebuttal. Yeah. Usually if I get an hour, I'll go 15 for rebuttal. Yeah. And keeping in mind, you want to confirm it with the court that you can borrow time. It's less of an issue if you're able to borrow time from the rebuttal. Right. 21 is invite your opponent to address critical issues. I mean, this works for the defense, too. They can try to steal away what you want to say in rebuttal by inviting you to address things in rebuttal. So invite opposing counsel to address critical issues. If you think there's something they just don't have an answer for, you want to try to make them have to talk about that thing that they don't want to talk about. Good lawyers won't do it. 22, invite defendant to suggest an amount for damages. And one of the ways I'll do this, and it's probably the same way you do it, is say, folks, you know, pay real close attention about whether you only hear one suggestion about what a fair amount in damages is in this case. If you only hear one, then you can give consideration to the fact that there's only one side that offered to you what a reasonable amount is. And the other side can kind of be forced into suggesting, well, we definitely think we should win. But if we don't. 23, what happens when the defense doesn't mention damages? What do you do then? I think then in rebuttal, typically what I'll do is, you know, they know that there are significant damages in this case and they have given you no guidance in how to consider those damages to help you do your job, but we certainly tried to. What I've done in the past is in rebuttal, when I get back up, I'll say, we went through damages with you. We showed you how those damages are calculated. We showed you how the law and the facts support the damages in the case, and you heard nothing from the defendant. You can assume that they got no problem with the amounts that we're recommending. Right. That's what I've done. Number 24, setting up a challenge for the defendant. I've had cases where a single question is repeatedly asked throughout the case. You know, why did you abandon the test for this vehicle? Why didn't you complete the recall? Why didn't you put a warning on the product? On a certain circumstance, you may have a really key issue, a very strong issue that really hasn't been answered by the defense. And you've gone through the whole case and nobody's able to give you a good explanation for it. Yeah. And I will flat out at the end of my first part. I wonder if they're finally going to get up and first thing, give you an answer to that. Because I've been waiting for it. And that's what I've done. I've said, look, we've been working on this case for three years. 
We've asked the corporate rep. We've asked other witnesses, experts. We still haven't gotten a satisfactory answer to this question. I've even written it on a flip chart, written it on there and say, we're inviting them to tell you why this didn't happen. And as you said, Tim, I've never once had somebody take me up on that and explain it. I leave it up there on the flip chart, of course, and then they'll come up and move it or or cover it. Good lawyers will go, that's a very clever move by a good trial lawyer to try to frame my clothes. 25. How to deal with comparative fault. When do you accept some fault, if ever? So I think, you know, depending upon your case, if it really is clear your client shares some fault, I think the best way to come out and address it is to say, look, my client is not saying they have absolutely no role in this. It lends credibility. It gives the jury wiggle room to go back and compromise. I like submitting on comparative fault rather than a binary decision of plaintiff win, plaintiff lose. I think it increases the chances of a verdict. And I think if your client really probably shares some relationship to what happened to them, had some part, I think the best thing is to come out and say, my client's not denying that. It's just that the other side here was a much bigger part of it. Yeah. And I think it can, as you said, it can work to your advantage in certain circumstances. It's better than an all or nothing. It gives the jury some compromise room. And the other thing too, is it really adds to your credibility Now, Tim, do you typically suggest an amount or a percentage, or do you just leave that to the jury? No, I typically suggest an amount of, look, I think it should be 90-10 or at most 75-25 or something like that. Well, that seems like a, a good breaking point. That was the first 25 of our 49 tips for closing argument. We'll be back next week with the second half of the list. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. My name is Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. We'll see you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.